show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. You know, I think every year we're learning more about the impacts of narcissism on our organizations. Churches and Christian organizations not only seem to attract narcissists or people on the narcissism scale, but it seems like we also cultivate it in many ways. And we're seeing more and more high-profile Christian leaders being exposed for abuse tactics. And uh, one of the most disappointing things, I think, is when we see that the boards and the leadership of these churches and organizations doubling down against the victims. And that's why I was really glad that Dr. Wade Mullen agreed to come on the show. He's our guest today because this is his field of expertise. Wade is the MDiv Program Director at Capital Seminary and Graduate School, and he did his PhD on this very topic. In fact, I'm going to read to you the title of his dissertation. It's Impression Management Strategies Used by Evangelical Organizations in the Wake of an Image-Threatening Event. And what I really appreciate about Wade is not just that he has a PhD in this topic, but it's also very personal for him, as you'll hear in this episode. But my, my greatest appreciation for Wade is his ability to real, really boil down for the rest of us what he looks for in um, organizations that are covering over abuse and what he does to help them shed light on what's going on. I started the interview by simply asking Wade, when he reads the press releases of these organizations that have been accused, what surprises him about what he sees in those press releases? Yeah, I think what surprises me more than anything is the amount of impression management tactics that I sometimes see in a statement. And so what I often see is that either the the statement has one or two statements that perhaps are one or two tactics that are that are perhaps um, common or predictable or they're not surprising that they would show up in anybody's ordinary language. But then sometimes I'll see an organization put out a statement that is almost all impression management, that the entire thing is potentially deceptive. And so if you were to ask the question, what is true? Where is truth in this statement? Uh, you might be left with a blank page. And so that is it. Yeah, go ahead. Is it your impression that the, let's call let's say a church, for example, mm-hmm. is it your impression that the church leaders releasing the statement believe it? Are they deceived or are they attempting to deceive? Yeah, and that's a, and that's a difficult question. There's a lot of research that's been done uh, to try to determine how calculated uh, these efforts are. You know, are they happening happening at a conscious level or an unconscious level or somewhere in between? And I I think that there is a a decision that the organization makes to manage their image, to protect themselves instead of pursuing truth and revealing truth and doing what would be uh, best for those who have been harmed. So I do think that they make a conscious decision to fortress a dark secret. Um, But um, what I have come to believe is that as I read these statements and I see, you know, let's say 20 or so tactics, different tactics in just a short statement, I find, I find it hard to believe that those tactics are being used in a very strategic and calculated manner 
um, what, when I see that, um, when I see a, a body of content uh, that is all impression management, and you might have multiple tactics uh, in just one sentence, and I walk away from that, re- reading that, uh, thinking there's no way that the author is, is this calculated. And so I believe that the author of these statements, and it could be a team of people or it could be one person, if it's just filled with impression management tactics, one after another, and they're all used in an interchangeable way, that it's likely that that person, that that author developed a script along the way. So they learned over time what works, what doesn't work. And that almost becomes second nature for that person so that they are intuitively using these tactics almost in an automated way. And there is, I believe, this decision that they are making to protect themselves. But I wonder if the practice of managing their image, managing the impressions people are forming of them has become so habituated, so second nature that it becomes almost an automated process that they don't necessarily have to sit down and, and, and calculate. I really think one of the gifts that you offer is, is you, um, you have a, a hair trigger to notice these impression management tactics. You, you offer definitions. You, it is like you expose it. What is it you're looking for? Yeah, I'm looking for the language. So what I see is a is a language, and I believe evil has a language, and a language is just a system of rules. And one of the reasons why I think we are so easily duped by those who are um, using these tactics in very deceptive ways is because they are they are operating with a set of rules that they're not sharing with us or perhaps we're not aware of or we don't see. And so they sort of have a, a leg up on us. And, and so when, when I'm looking at a statement, I'm seeing almost another language. But as I've been learning what these tactics are and have been giving them la- labels and defining them, it's as if the, 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 this hidden language comes up to the surface and that's what I'm able to able to see. Yeah. How did you become so fluent in impression management as a, how are you able to uh, understand it? Yeah. Well, there's a a whole body of research that's been done on impression management. Uh, One of the uh, key uh, proponents of impression management is a man named Irving Goffman, Um, late Irving Goffman. He was a Canadian sociologist and he wrote a book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And so ever since he came out with that book, uh, a lot of researchers have uh, unpacked uh, his, what's called a dramaturgical theory. So uh, he said, we're all engaged in this drama, this performance as we go throughout our days and we're managing the impressions people are forming of us via this performance. And so researchers over the decades have tried to unpack uh, specific ways in which we perform, specific tactics that we use. And so for my PhD dissertation, um, I dove into that field and began to learn all these various tactics. And then um, for my own research, uh, put together a taxonomy, uh, these categories of tactics. 
and uh, began to understand them, began to apply them to content that I was reading. But then also for me, while I was going through this uh, PhD work, I was also going through a very serious crisis at the church that I was a pastor at and multiple abusers involved in that and in my life. And I began to see that the tactics that I was learning and reading about in the research were also the tactics that the abusers in my life were using. And and so I became deeply invested in this uh, topic and in wanting not just for the sake of the academic research, but also for the sake of my own personal life to be able to to see these tactics, see this language as I was facing it in real time. So let's get into some of the definitions. Um, could you explain for us gaslighting and supplication? Yeah, and, and gaslighting, you know, is isn't a term that I that I really became familiar with until after I completed my my PhD work. So it's it's not something that sh- it's not a term that showed up in the in the academic uh, li- literature that I had read. Uh, but from what I understand, gaslighting is an attempt to uh, cause the other person, the target of your behavior or language, to be confused, to doubt their own reality, to be lost. And, and I think that's one of the one of the primary goals of impression management and deception is to cause confusion in, in the other person uh, because it's easier to control a person who is confused. And and so one of the ways in which people do that is through a specific tactic called supplication where a person who perhaps is trying to um, protect their image, um, perhaps as a pastor, let's, let's say, who uh, has received a lot of criticism from attendees, um, perhaps people are shining a light on his anger, um, some kind of domineering behavior, and the board meets with him to discuss this. And they ask, can you please give an account of your behavior? And he might use supplication. He might pr- pretend or act as if he is this, this lamb who's been hurt by others, or perhaps he's been under a lot of stress, or perhaps he's been sick, or any number of things that would cause the people who have power over him, the board members that are around him, to see him with uh, compassion and sympathy and then extend help to him. Okay, so he's in need of their help. He's in need of their favor. He's in need of their approval at this moment because people are starting to raise concerns. And so one way that he might uh, manipulate that board is through the use of what's called supplication. Is that also, Wade, when you write about a leader being a lion and a lamb, is that the same idea? No, so I... I use the image of a lion to describe the impression management tactic of intimidation. And so going back to that example of the pastor in the boardroom, it's unlikely that that pastor, if he's being asked to give an account of his behavior, is going to act like a lion in that boardroom uh, because that, that may not fly uh, with certain people. Now there are pastors who over time have, have taken control of their board and they can, be domineering even towards them. Uh, But let's say, for example, this is a good board and the pastor's not going to get away with threatening them. But he might feel as if he can get away with that intimidating behavior when he's engaging with those who have less power. 
And so perhaps he's uh, perhaps he's been threatening and intimidating towards a subordinate. And he knows that he can get away with that because um, that subordinate, if that subordinate goes to the board and says, yay, you know, the pastor has been threatening me, has, you know, behind closed doors when we've been meeting, there's been outbursts of anger. Well, the board who has only seen supplication, who's only seen the lamb might say, you know, we haven't seen any of this. Um, and so a person who is in a position of power, who is deceptive, who is trying to manage their image, they can act like a lion when they're around those who have less power than them and then go and act like a lamb when they're around those who have more power. Yeah, and if I'm understanding you right, the lamb side that they show is the supplication side? Yes, yeah. So the, yeah. it's please. The, you know, they're, they're pleading for help. Um, if only you knew the trouble I'm dealing with and all of that. You, right, yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I worked for a guy that very much fits this description. Yeah, the, the crazy-making side that you talked about, you'd go home thinking you were the problem. Yeah. And it took me a long time. It actually took me... I'd, I'd been working with him for a while when I realized he paints a clear target for you. And then when you hit it, he punishes you. Mm-hmm. It was it was quite a crazy making move, but he definitely had the lamb lion thing. The people above him didn't see what the people below him saw. Right. It was very difficult for the people below him to show the people above him what was going on. Yeah. and it, and And I think that's intentional. So the person often subordinates not only feel confused, uh, because they're they're hearing be, they're seeing behavior they're hearing words that that the, perhaps they don't expect from their pastor, but then they also feel stuck. They feel trapped. They feel captive because when they go to those who have authority over that pastor, or if they talk to anybody who who has only seen a positive side of the pastor, then they're met with disbelief, and then they don't know what to do with that, and so they feel both confused. And they feel trapped, and that's a hard place to be in. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, a- another metaphor you use is one of shoe polish. You talk about polish and tarnish. Mm-hmm. Could you explain that for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So, um, what often happens in impression management is the person who, and I've only seen these kind of tactics in those who have who have learned the script pretty well. Um, And so what people who are highly practiced in deception might do is start making connections to those who are indirectly uh, related to the situation. And so perhaps somebody who in some way they have an association with. So let's say, you know, the, the church leader is being exposed publicly, but he has the support of the elder board. And the elder board has committed to support this church leader, this, this senior pastor, while knowing that he has the support of the elder board, he might want other people to see that he has the support of the board. And so he draws this connection, this publicly draws this positive connection that he has with the board. He wants to display that so other people can see that. But then he not only will make that connection, but he might also uh, polish the positive attributes of that board, knowing that if the audience, if the church, if the public is seeing the board as as wise and as um, full of integrity, as those who are doing their job, and if then if they see them in that positive light, 
And if the board is seeing that senior pastor in a positive light and is saying, we support him, we believe him, we don't think there's any concerns that need to be addressed, well, then that polishing has a, has a positive impact on and a powerful impact on the way in which people are viewing that, that senior pastor. And so he might do the opposite thing with, with those who are, instead of with those who are, who are raising the concerns, who are shining a light on this, this, this uh, lack of integrity or this bad behavior, instead of polishing their positive attributes, attributes, he might tarnish them and try to shine a light on their negative attributes as a way of discrediting who they are and the claims that they're making. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely hearing an ongoing theme from you, and it is the remarkable ability of a narcissistic leader to manage their image in a very nuanced way, depending on what message, both managing their image up and down, but also by demonizing and lionizing as they need. Yes. So one one of the other categories you give, and I, I wonder if this is new direction or more of the same, but you talk about cubicles of charm versus crucibles of condemnation. Mm-hmm. Is that different or is that the same kind of idea? No, that that would be a bit different. Um, is I see as the ways in which the narcissistic leader conditions followers so that the followers only view that narcissistic leader with favor and with liking. And so the most powerful way to do that is to charm them is to use what the academic uh, research would call ingratiation. And so uh, the narcissistic leader knows that his or her uh, position and success and power is based on the favor of the followers and of the public. And so they earn that favor. They manipulate people into granting that favor through flattery, through gifts, through favors, through compliments, through these ingratiating charms that that win over someone's someone's favor. So, I think that the narcissistic leader is driven by a thirst for power, and and they use that power to gain possession of other people and things that they have. And so, the narcissistic leader wants to possess another person's approval. And so they use charm to, to gain that from them. So that's, so he, so I use the metaphor of placing these people in cubicles of charm, but one of the ways I think that, that um, flattery and these, these insincere expressions of kindness are revealed to be insincere is what happens when those who are in the cubicles of charm start to, uh, either um, push back uh, against that leader or they don't receive uh, favors or offers to help or they start raising concerns. They don't mirror the, 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 the ingratiation. What happens is suddenly that person, those people in those cubicles of charm are all of a sudden placed in a, in a crucible of condemnation. Okay, well, if you're not going to play this game, if you're not going to be on our side, if you're not going to go along with this, then you're now our enemy and we're going to condemn you and we're going to put you in this crucible and melt all of your opposition away. And so all of a sudden, the person who was extremely kind is suddenly extremely intimidating and angry and threatening 
And, and that's, that's what I was trying to get at with those metaphors of a cubicle of charm and a crucible of condemnation. Yeah. It's almost like if you don't worship them, they seek to destroy you. Yes. Yeah. Is there any hope for narcissists? Like if, if, uh, you know, there's so many hope, high profile examples right now, unfortunately, is there hope of redemption for these people or is narcissism almost irredeemable because it requires self-awareness? Yeah. And, and I'm cautious um, when, when people ask me that question, because I need to be aware of my own limitations and I'm, and, and I'm not a psychologist and I can't diagnose someone. Um, I think their narcissism happens on a continuum. And so I've read some research researchers who describe what they call everyday narcissism. And so you might see that as just, um, you know, words and acts that indicate arrogance. And then on the other end of that spectrum, there's um, pathological narcissism, uh, the person who has NPD. And I think we, we exist on this spectrum on, on this continuum. And so I think it's important for people who are displaying narcissistic traits and tendencies to realize that they perhaps are on a path and they need to be rescued uh, from that, from that path. And I think that that can happen, um, but self-awareness is, is key. And so I use the metaphor of, you know, I love using metaphors to help people understand these concepts of uh, someone who let's say grows up um, watching ping pong table tennis and they grow to love table tennis. And then they get to a, get to a point in their life where they're filled with despair and anxiety and their inner landscape is barren like a desert, and they start looking for something outside of themselves. And perhaps that person says, I'd like to be a professional table tennis player. That's going to be the cure for this death that I'm feeling on the inside. And so they go and they become this professional table tennis player for 20 years, 30 years. Um, and then at some point they break their hand, they can no longer play table tennis. And so that person says, I don't know what I'm going to do without this. I I don't think I can live without this because this is who I am. This is my source of life. And so that person all of a sudden without the, without the table tennis is left just with their barren inner landscape. That's all that they have left. But it's my, it's, it's my theory that often what we see, in those who are narcissistic and occupies occupy positions of power is that their, their landscape was their inner landscape was barren to begin with. And they went after that position. They sought that position um, as a way of fleeing that desert that, that exists on the inside. And so I think the hope for that individual is to remove themselves from this external life that they've built where they're searching for all of their answers and to look again at this inner landscape, but they're so interior in in their interior life. They're, they're so underdeveloped and malnourished that that in some ways they have to become like a child. And for the narcissistic person, 
that might feel like death to them. That's the last thing that they want to do is humble themselves to the point of becoming like a child. It seems like so many church leaders that get exposed, let's particularly some of the more nationally known ones, mm-hmm. it seems to me that they shortcut this process and f- and very quickly find another church. That's right. I think that's what you're getting at. Right, right. I think they do um, because I think they overestimate their own recovery. I think it's better for them to to go back um, to, and often they need they can only do this with the help of outside professionals. Um, so it's not even enough for them to just confess and become aware of their own problems. They need to go and submit themselves to experts and say, here's what I know to be wrong, but you show me what is really going on. Which they seem to do for a short while. M- most of these people do publicly talk about their therapy or their recovery, but it does seem to be healed very quickly, I guess. <laughs> yes, right, right. And that's why I like the using the the analogy of becoming like a child, because they're there has to be this slow developmental aspect. And I think as part of that, they need to remove from their minds and other people need to remove this from, from, from their language as well, the assumption that they're ever going to be back in a position of power. But what I often see is that they enter into that period of recovery with the, with the hope that, Recovery will include a restoration to that position, and I right. It's it's almost like let's take a preacher. It's almost like for the preacher, the pulpit is the bottle. Like there's an addiction, yeah, and and an alcoholic can never drink again. But the preacher really does believe he or she, usually he, can preach again. Right, right, and and then they end up being restored to their vice. And so I think that's why they have to go back to the beginning sometimes and ask, you know, why did I enter into this position, this field to begin with? And that's a hard question to ask and a hard question to answer. Uh, but they need to do that. They, they need to do that work and they need to ask the question once they get out of that, who am I without this? And am I okay if I never get this back? And that's why I think it's healthy for them to assume that they never will. And if I'm going to be small time, if I'm going to have a small time job and a small time play, and for the narcissist, they don't want to be small time. But it, but if they can reach a point where they say, if I'm small time, that's okay, because it doesn't matter what, what, what other people think. You know, Wade, I, I'm listening to you, and part of me is saying, this is so incredibly helpful. And part of me is saying, you are a bleak man. Oh, <laughs> like, this is <laughs> yeah. this is discouraging. Yes, yes. Yeah, and... And, and it is bleak. And so there, you have to go when, you know, some, somebody had said this to me at one point that you have to go through what feels like death if you want to live again. And so you have to embrace that bleakness. I think if you're in that state, you have to, you have to lean into that. You have to embrace it. Uh, but if you do that, I believe that there's beauty in life on the other side. And then also I do, you know, I, I do work in, you know, these bleak settings and I'm researching these behaviors that are used by abusers and I'm, and I'm talking and trying to help those who have been victimized by these abusers. And, and so that is, that is dark. And so one thing that I've learned that I need in order to maintain this work and also to maintain a, a 
proper and healthy perspective is to get glimpses of beauty. And so to find ways in which I can gaze at, at, at beauty. Yeah, I've, I've noticed in myself that I get almost obsessed with these situations and I don't think it's a TMZ type. I don't, I don't think I'm attracted to a, you know, a train wreck. I think it's because I'm afraid of becoming it. I, you know, I'm a lead pastor. I get on a stage, not every week, but many weeks. I, I'm the top of my organization. So I think there is a, a fear in me, but, um, one of the things I've noticed, because I've been, I think I've probably studied almost every case in the last five or six years, six, yeah, mm-hmm. something like that. I've, I've unfortunately been able to tell you who the author is of the PR statement. There's, there's actually a Christian firm that these churches bring in to basically mm-hmm. perpetuate known lies. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your, what's your reaction to that? Why, why in the world is there a Christian firm that's coming into these churches and actually helping them cover up? Yeah, I mean, and that's a sad um, rea- reality, and it's an indicator of perhaps where where we're at um, as a as a church. At some point along the way, I suppose the industry decided that uh, the protection of the organization is more important than truth, and enough people agree that that's a higher value. That there were those who made a career out of helping people protect those disruptive truths. I keep thinking that there's some kind of a, a dichotomy in their heads, like these bloggers or whoever are revealing these, uh, they're getting in the way of the greater good of the kingdom. It's that kind of justification. But every yes. time you read these statements, the level to which they obfuscate feels to me to be self-revealing. Like if I read a statement and it's obfuscating, and as you've pointed out, some of the impression management, that's the sign they're guilty. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't think of a single one of these churches that it turned out was falsely accused. Right, yes, yeah. And and then the next church that faces it, they don't seem to know how to look at the previous history and say, you know what, these last 17 churches that did what we're about to do didn't end well for them maybe we should try a different way. They, they don't seem to have that self-awareness. No. And, and, and I am, I am saddened uh, by the amount of condemnation uh, that bloggers and journalists are receiving uh, because what I've seen, what I've observed is that they are motivated by a love and a concern for those who are being harmed. Many of those have been harmed themselves. And so they are incurring, they know that they're going to, they're going to be incurring this condemnation. So they're taking personal risks to shine a light and perhaps are some of the best people among us. That's how I see them, uh, that these are heroes among us who are, who are, who are shining a light in dark places and it's sad to me that those who are in positions of influence and power are so often making them appear to be worse than they really are and making them appear to be the enemy. 
and and I think that's yeah. that's that's sad. Are you, how familiar are you with uh, Breaking Bad, the T the old TV show? Oh yeah, I'm I'm familiar with the the storyline, and I've seen some of those some of the episodes. Yeah, it's a it's a it's fascinating to me because it it was written by somebody who doesn't proclaim any sort of faith, but he Vince Gilligan, the the guy that created the show, he was fascinated to watch what happens when a man gives himself over to evil endeavors, mm-hmm. and and evil slowly changes who he is at his core, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm wondering what your uh, opinion is. Like you, you referred earlier that. A narcissist will seek the stage. How much does the stage cultivate a narcissist? Like if if somebody has these tendencies, but they're not all the way to being an NPD, how much does the stage and the spotlight actually create them to become an NPD? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So I think there are internal attributes of a person that sometimes align with the external characteristics of a setting. And so the external characteristics might serve as a magnet to those who are internally drawn to, to those attributes. So for example, if the narcissistic person has grandiose views of themselves, has fantasizes about their success and then, and then you have this context over here that provides them with a stage and with lights and with um, the opportunity to speak or perform in front of a large crowd, well, that's going to attract the person who wants to be in that place of of grandiose um, worship and and, and exaltation. And so I do think that we have to, we have to consider how our systems are potentially attracting those who are narcissistic and are feeding off of um, the, the, the system itself. So our systems are attracting, I guess the question is, are our systems also breeding kind of a nature nurture question? Yeah, and I do think they form a symbiotic relationship so that the narcissistic leader in that setting creates a system, um, and then the system also breeds narcissism in individuals, and so they form this symbiotic mutual relationship. So let's I, I can give you a, a, another me- metaphor uh, that might take, take a couple minutes, but let's say – you, you go into a coffee shop and there's a person in that coffee shop who's watching a movie and there's a bunch of people sitting around that person. You sit down next to that person. They're watching a movie, but they're not, they don't, they don't have headphones on. And so you expect some privacy and some quiet, but this guy's watching this movie and it's loud and everybody can hear it and it's distracting. Well, you might want to say something, but you know that if you say something, it could cause a scene. You don't know how that man's going to react. And so that man, let's say that man is a narcissistic person who feels entitled to getting whatever he wants. And so the group decides not to give that behavior any attention. So Goffman calls this tactful inattention, choosing not to give uh, 
any attention to a behavior that perhaps violates a social norm or rule because you'd rather keep the peace. So the whole group decides not to say anything. Well, let's say the next day he comes back, watches, puts his movie on and decides to turn the volume up a little louder because the day before nobody said anything. Okay, so now he is um, exerting um, more of his wishes and desires into that space and nobody's saying anything. So the whole group now is renegotiating the boundaries. So this is where I think it begins to become a symbiotic relationship where this person who is exerting control and getting, doing what he wants is now being enabled to do that by the, by the community because the community has decided for the sake of maintaining peace to grant this person what, the, what they want to renegotiate boundaries. And so that I then I think begins a process in which the narcissistic person, let's say the movie watcher, begins to do whatever he wants. And, and so we create systems that allow for this. So let's say that movie watcher isn't just an ordinary person, but is also the, the, the pastor in the town that all the people love. Well, then they're, they're even less likely to say anything. Or let's say that it's not just a random coffee shop, but it's a coffee shop that's in the church, that the pastor is uh, perhaps the person in charge and so now everyone has a role to play in relationship to that past when they might feel as if, and they might have been conditioned to believe that part of being a good Christian is not, not saying anything about him watching this, this movie. Especially if he's the one that he is from God for the rest of us. Yeah, exactly. You know, so, so I think all of these factors converge to create this environment in which the, the narcissistic person is able to get what he or she wants, and then the community renegotiates boundaries to allow for that. Okay. So I'd like to see if we can be helpful to two types of listeners. What is your advice to somebody who's listening to this and they're thinking to themselves, that's my boss or that's my boss's boss? What's the next couple of steps they can do? I think one of the steps that they might consider is appealing to that narcissistic person. Now, perhaps the only way that they know that they're narcissistic is because they've already done that. So often the narcissist reveals themselves when they're confronted. And so perhaps they've already done that. Um, so the next step might be to appeal to a higher authority. And, and so I think a good principle uh, of ethical f followership is to ask the question, is there another authority that I can appeal to? And I think the follower has the right to appeal to a higher authority. If the authority that they've already appealed to isn't responding with integrity, then they can take their concerns to perhaps a board and hopefully the board is able to listen and consider and 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 respond in, in 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 an appropriate manner and then some of the more high profile cases lately we've seen that those boards double down against the accuser right is the only solution at that point i mean i i, I want to guard against a question that asks an absolute answer i understand mm -hmm. these are nuanced situations but is one of the more likely solutions just leaving and making sure you take care of yourself 
Yeah, and I think that's up to each individual person. Um, but I do think that the person should consider whether or not, let's say they're employed uh, at the organization, whether or not they ought to resign and move on, uh, whether it's you know whether or not they want to work for an organization that is inherently deceptive. So at that point, if the board isn't acting with when they're confronted with truth, then the, then the church or the organization is governed by deception and it's headed towards destruction. And so that leaves that employee with, with the choice of whether or not they want to be a part of that, or even whether or not they can walk with integrity uh, while being a part of that. And so that's a difficult question for each individual person to, to ask. Um, But I think there are other, other options um, even beyond the board, depending on the organization uh, there could be an, uh, if it's a denomination, there could be a, a higher, authority to appeal to even beyond that, that board. Um, or there could be, uh, you know, like in a college setting, there could be an external, uh, body of, of accreditation that they could appeal to. And so there's options perhaps outside of, of that. Obviously if it's a criminal behavior, then you're going to go to the, you're appealing to the, to, to, to the law and, and going, going to law enforcement. So it's thinking through, all of those, all of those factors, and then I do think that that there is a place for uh, appealing to the to the public, and so we're seeing some of that. Um, so the, those are those are di- difficult questions to, to ask. Yeah. So then the other listener I think we could be helpful for is. Um, either a ministry student or somebody who's young in ministry, if we just focus on church leadership, mm. they're listening to this. And let, let's say that they are a, a type A charismatic upfront leader type. Let's say they've been affirmed for those gifts mm. from young age. Right. And they're listening to this and they're thinking, holy smokes, how do I guard my own heart yeah. from being pulled down this path? Mm. One of the things I've heard you say is to, to – watch out for exceptionalism it sounds like if you start to see yourself as the exception or if your group treats you as the exception Mm -hmm. is there something else that the person can watch out for yeah i think it's yeah it's it's watching out for uh, thoughts that elevate yourself that exemplifies yourself you know so and a lot of times people will will uh, say to you well you are a leader you know, you're a born leader, you're a natural leader. Um, and I, I would caution against even saying that about yourself, you know, perhaps let other people say that, but if you find your identity in, in, uh, being a leader, let's say, or being a pastor or being in a position, uh, then I think that that can be dangerous and unhealthy, uh, because, what do you do when you don't find yourself in that position? Um, well, if that's what you've been clinging to, then when you no longer have that, uh, you're left wondering, who am I? Yeah, maybe your invitation earlier to cultivating that interior life and to going through that death and resurrection process, that's something a young, a young leader, a young ministry student can begin yeah, it's, you know, I I wasn't taught that. I don't think until later. In, I I think in some ways I had to learn it through survival. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, it's it's recognizing that your your first call is to follow Jesus. Um, that's the first call in your life, um, not to be a leader of, of of others. Yeah, I know. In my own life, I, I I've shared this on the podcast before, but it, for me, it's a constant wrestling between my identity as God's beloved child mm-hmm. and my identity or my uh, role as God's employee. Yeah, you know and. And they do seem to be in tension mm-hmm. to me, and I find myself having to fight to remember where my identity is rooted versus the way I relate to God. Right, right. And sometimes it's helpful then to to go back to your roots, you know, and, and recognize, you know, this this is who I am. Um, and and I think those who are young perhaps often don't take the time to to do that, um, but I think it's important for them to continue to cultivate that inner life. Um, and as they see their external kingdom, so, so to speak, growing that on the inside, they're, they're remaining like a child. Hmm. They're remaining humble. They're submitting themselves to, 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 to others. And oftentimes that inner life becomes neglected because the younger person who's seeing a lot of uh, work coming their way and praise only is only is cultivating the the, the outer man. Of anxiety questions that I ask every guest. Um, so, a lot of what we do on this show is is we help listeners really notice anxiety in their life. And anxiety isn't simply worry; it's any response that blocks you from being fully human to others and fully human to God. Mm -hmm. So for example, mansplaining is often an anxious Mm -hmm. response. Mm -hmm. Begin to identify it. Mm -hmm. So the first question is, um, where does anxiety start for you physiologically if you had a choice between a, a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut? Where would you say anxiety begins for you? For me, it begins with a spinning mind, you know, where I I know that something is in the future uh, that I have to face. There's a decision that I need to make, and so I'm bro- brooding over that. Yeah, you're like preempting it by worrying about it. Yeah, yeah, and then I'm not present with the people that that I'm around okay. or with because I'm preoccupied with my chattering mind. Okay. Um, but I have noticed, though, that when perhaps there's uh, there, the response is dictated by how close the object of the anxiety is to you, because I've noticed sometimes when I'm suddenly thrust into a situation that the that the first uh, response in my body is a is a racing heart. You know, so yeah, if you because you don't have time to worry about it, you yeah, just right, have to right. act. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another source of anxiety for leaders and parents is in any given moment where we believe we need something that we don't actually need. Mm -hmm. So for example, in my own life, I believe I always need to be understood. So if someone misunderstands me, I get anxious because I'm not getting what I believe I need, even though actually I don't actually need to be. I can be misunderstood and still be okay. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you can identify that you believe you need in any given moment that you don't actually need. Yeah, I, I think for me, perhaps, and this is the first time I've ever heard this question. It's a, it's a great question. I, as I'm thinking about it for the first time, I think that often what I need is is time, or that I think I need. 
So give me space, give me time uh, before I can respond. And well, I'm glad I could help you by springing a question yeah, on right, you, right, right. ironically. An answer. Um, and and often though, what that is 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 an excuse to self-edit. You know, sometimes you do need time to be careful. You know, but sometimes I feel as if I need that when I really don't. Great. This next question is actually somewhat related to your field of expertise. Uh, I believe a great source of anxiety, particularly for a leader, is making a mistake in front of other people. Mm -hmm. Because because if you are in a leadership role, and our listeners are mostly leaders and parents, we'd categorize a parent in a leadership role, uh, all of your mistakes are done in front of other people. Yeah. yeah. If we uh, wipe away the kinds of mistakes that should get you fired, exposed, or in jail, we're not talking those mistakes. Mm. We just mean a well-meaning blunder. Uh, would you be willing to share a recent mistake you made and what you had to do to recover from it? Yeah, uh, this is fairly recent, maybe just a few weeks ago. Um, I had been working with an, with another uh, man in, in another organization on a on a long project involving two two organizations that we were each a part of, and together uh, we were. Um, developing a report that we were going to submit to the heads of both organizations. And so I was at the end of the day in charge of finalizing this report and sending it to both, both heads at, at both organizations. And so I, we met the deadline. I sent the report. And then a few days later realized that, that there was a mistake in that report. Um, and it wasn't just a typo. It was a single number um, but it's an important number, a number that decisions are going to be based on. And so I saw it and I realized I need to correct this. And not only do I need to correct it, um, but I felt like I needed to apologize for not being more careful. It, was a mis- it wasn't just a typo. It was a mistake that could have been avoided had I taken just a couple extra steps to check and to be careful and so I had to write, you know, I remember being anxious about this because you don't know, you know, you, when you apologize, you're, you are vulnerable because you're putting yourself at the mercy of, of other people. And when that's you're right. At the mercy of those who have power over you, uh, that that's even for me, even a more of an anxious place to be in. Um, so I had to write to them and say, you know, here's a corrected report. I'm sorry. Here's what needed to be corrected. I should have been more careful. And, and they were very gracious and they wrote back and they said, well, we, we, you know, we're, we're thankful that you are uh, taking the time to get this right or committed to, to getting it right. Uh, but I had to wrestle through that, you know, sending that email, wait, not knowing how they were going to respond, waiting for this response. Yeah, that's a great example. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, we also spend our time on this show, you know, some of the time is talking about internal anxiety, but some of it is, is teaching people how to notice anxiety in a group. So one of my theses is um, groups catch anxiety the way you catch a cold. It's always contagious. Could you give us an example of where you have seen anxiety spread in a group? Yeah, I I think for me, the most palpable uh, environments that I've been in where anxiety seems to be seems to spread is in a very tense meeting where somebody's being confronted. And, and so I've, I've been a part of a, f- a fair amount of those and, and some even recent. 
and somebody respond, the person, often the person who's being confronted or exposed suddenly starts yelling or gets angry or starts pounding the table. And you can tell just the anxiety is now spreading in the room. And, and I've learned that in that moment, it's important for me when I respond to that individual to, to stay calm and to not mirror the, the aggression, um, and that's, that's difficult to do. It's to kind of keep breathing and just respond with truth and love. And that also, though, sets, sets a, kind of reestablishes the mood in the room, if you can. Yeah, you're, you're describing what's a technical term in systems theory as differentiation. Mm. Um, and, and the more everyday term will be a non-anxious presence because typically the most anxious person in the room has the most power. Mm. Unless a non-anxious leader can come in exactly as you just described. Mm. That's good. I I hadn't heard of that. And I'm not Mm. familiar, too familiar with systems theory. So I'd be interested in knowing, like, if I were to start, where would I start? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm now in a uh, difficult position because my book on systems theory comes out in two weeks. And it is meant to be a primer. Um, But I would begin with... A guy named Murray Bowen. I'll send you an email with some suggested stuff. Um, and I'll also just, in fact, now that we're talking about it on the show, I'll put it in the show notes, but I'll send you a, a really neat eight to 10 minute YouTube video that I think is the best overview mm. of systems theory and non anxious presence and differentiation. Okay. But you're already practicing it. This is actually uh, why I love this theory, is most people intuitively know it. It's just putting language and tools yes. to what. So you intuitively know not to be reactive to the anxious response. Mm-hmm. Um, systems theory just gives um, gives tools and uh, and help. I think the best thing it does is it helps a, a person pay as much attention to process as content. Mm-hmm. So you're not as concerned with the agenda in the meeting. You are equally as concerned with how people are relating. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of people intuitively know that it just kind of raises it to the surface. Yeah. But yeah, I'll send you. Yeah, I'll send you great. some stuff. Oh, yeah, you. yeah. Okay, I've got two more questions. I think they're way more fun uh, since this this has been a bleak, <laughs> bleak, and highly necessary topic. Um, uh, I, I think one of the ways a person can lower their anxiety is to go on that journey you described, Wade. To go back to that childlike identity. Mm-hmm. So that leads to this next question of um, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Hmm. I, in some ways, feel most fully loved when I am in that place of exposing my soul, my inner landscape uh, to uh, my wife or perhaps a counselor that, that I'm meeting with. And I'm not sure how they're going to respond, but they respond with validation, with affirmation, and with with support. But I'm not, not just that, but also with uh, hard truths that I need to hear, that they love me enough to tell me what I need to hear. I think in those moments, I feel most fully loved by another human. That's great. And then the final question is, um, could you give us a couple of activities and a couple of geographical locations that make you feel most human and alive. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, well, one location that my wife and I love to be in 
is New England, the Boston area. So she's originally from that area. And so when we have opportunity to go visit her family, there's just some areas around Boston. And I love the, the, the water. Um, Cohasset is a town near there. Uh, that I love to drive through and visit and just sit and look at the water. And we're, and when we're able to do that together and just explore that whole region, uh, that, that for us brings a lot of life to our, to, to our soul. And then uh, personally uh, there's a, there's a location that if I get a chance to, when it's nice out that I might run or hike to, and it's uh, just a place tucked away in the woods, but it's a body of water with like this cliff on one side. And it's just a beautiful place. It's always quiet. There's no one else there. And if I can run, go on this trail run and then find myself there and spend some time in in my soul. Hmm. Great. Wade, thanks very much. This has been a really rich interview. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm glad it's helpful. On Instagram from the handle Steve Cusswords. You can also go to stevecusswords.com for more resources.